If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another edition of Hoops, Hoops Talk Live. My name is Randy Zelia, along with the man behind the pen, the, the behind the microphone, behind the keyboard, behind the force, and behind the emperor. That's right. His name is Bill Ingram. Bill, good, good afternoon. Happy Thursday to you, my friend. I always think uh, I'm getting ready to watch House MD when our theme comes on, because the first part, granted, every song is using chord progressions from other songs, but... I always think, oh, house. Oh, wait, no, it's not house. <laughs> well, it's, it's ACDC. It tells bells. You got to love it. And I think sometimes when you oh, watch see, the I NBA. Never uh, was a, I never was an ACDC, that, that kind of uh, the harder rock stuff I was never into. So that's why I don't know that. I, was, I, think, of, I yeah. think of house. <laughs> but I, I, I I always laugh when people ask me about why I like that song so much. I'm like, because sometimes when you work in this industry, it does feel like hell's bells. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, with, with like when the people with the Boston Celtics yeah. think that you're an international uh, entity when you <laughs> talk about going to, to uh, media day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know, you went there, so we might as well go. Okay. Before we get started with today's topic and by the way, hello, Bill. It's, it's always nice to have you with us. You can, uh, we'll, we'll give all the social media stuff out in a second. Let's let's give a quick background. So, you know, Bill has graciously come aboard with Back Sports Page and helped us grow uh, in a very short period, short span, a short period of time. And uh, we are looking to send one of our writers over to the Boston Celtics Media Day. And when that happened, they responded back and said, "Well, you're going to have to talk to our international correspondent." And I'm like, "We're not international." I'm looking at Bill saying. That doesn't make any sense. She's like, I'm pretty sure she's just really, really, really busy. And maybe, maybe confuse us with someone else. And that's pretty much what happened. But, like, Bill is like, apparently we're the international crew now. 
<laughs> but once I emailed uh, the Celtics, Heather, I, and then she was like, oh, oh, Bill, oh, no, I'm sorry. Yes, you guys are fine. Yes, no problem. Send whoever you want. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I like, just, yeah. just send it here. And what's even better is it's like without giving anybody the name of like of how you have to send them over the credential request, they sent me the email address backwards. But that's even that's besides the point too. But um, <laughs> so before we jump into this week's topic, last week's topic was Tim Duncan. Uh, Bill, what kind of feedback did you get when we spoke about the big fundamental, Tim Duncan? Very typically, um, my Spurs following were all just elated because there's no question, you know, everybody in San Antonio knows Tim Duncan. I had a few people say, like, really, the greatest power forward of all time? I was like, yes, I know you didn't watch him. You're not from San Antonio. Nobody else watched him. He didn't talk to anybody. Nobody understood who he was. But if you were in San Antonio, you understand why. <laughs> Tim, I didn't get any of the Spurs people that I tweeted out to, you know, I didn't get one person going, really? Tim Duncan, greatest power forward of all time? <laughs> they were all like, oh, yeah, finally somebody recognized. <laughs> so, yes, the Tim general, Duncan. The, the general feedback I got was they liked the way we handled it as we were going over some different situations with him. And the general feedback also that I've got just about the show is they like that we're taking people down memory lane and even educating uh, a lot of the fan base about that time frame of the NBA where we were jumping to. Now, Tim Duncan's career, uh, you know, lasted you know a very long time, and he and so a lot of people, some people only saw the tail end of Duncan's career and didn't know about the fact that he was, you know, wanted to be a swimmer and that fell apart. So he settled for <laughs> he settled for basketball. Settled so, for being know, the best been, player in the history. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not so, by accident. A lot of people, yeah, a lot of people also a lot of people didn't know it, so it's it's very good. By the way, if anyone wants to listen to archives of the show, they can go to backsportspage.com and go to Hoops Talk. Uh, our previous episodes about Clyde Drexler, the NBA All Star uh, Weekend 2000, uh, and Tim Duncan. And then this week's topic is one that I've been pushing Bill on for the last couple of weeks, just because it's you know after we looked at it a little bit, like yeah, this is a pretty crazy topic. But the 1996 NBA draft, and let's give a little bit of a background here uh, about the NBA draft how it's changed over the years. The NBA draft used well, to be... Well, I, I do want to say one thing, Randy, before we get too far from it. Getting into the history and the perspective of the NBA and how it got to where it is is what interests me about this, the process that we're going through. Because too many people today are like, oh, yeah, LeBron's the GOAT, man. Like, yeah, well, okay, LeBron's really good. But the GOAT, the greatest of all time, there's a perspective missing (laughs) and uh, being able to shed a little light on that perspective for and in all fairness a lot of people who are younger and didn't see a a Kim Olajuwon didn't see Clyde Drexler didn't see Tim Duncan in his prime that's something that interests me is making sure that people remember where the league came from to get to where it is now and without that with with no further uh Introduction, uh, introduction to it. Now, the, the, the probably the greatest draft of all time. Yeah, well, and it's a very interesting, a very interesting draft. Again, first off, the, N- the NBA draft used to be a time where it was always like you're you're looking for building pieces, and I think and the building blocks. And I think the best example on how a team sort of drafted right over a, a couple of years span is you look at back in the Orlando Magic when they drafted Shaquille O'Neal. 
they drafted this really big centerpiece for a team. You know, Shaq was obviously a guy you can build around. Uh, a couple yeah, years before, you knew he would be. There was like no Nick, question. And a couple years before, they had guys like Nick Anderson and Dennis Scott, who at the time didn't know that they were going to be good complementary pieces. But when, obviously when Shaq got there, they're like, okay, these, now you're putting weapons around Shaq. And then the following year when, even though the Orlando Magic and Shaq's rookie year finished 41-41 and 41 and did not make the playoffs, they ended up drafting – first they drafted Chris Webber, which at the time I'm like, wow, they have Scott Skiles, Nick Anderson, Dennis Scott. You had Chris Webber and Shaquille O'Neal. You might have an NBA championship squad right there. So they ended up trading, yeah. uh, trading away Chris Webber uh, for the rights for Anthony Hardaway and ended up losing Scott Skiles who was an older point guard at that time anyway. So you're probably going to lose him in a couple of years. So now they have the point guard of the future with Anthony Hardaway. The draft is always one of those things where it's if you're a good team, it's finding little pieces to help get you over the hump. The bad team is looking for that marquee player that's going to take you out of that lottery category and put you in as a contender. And I think that's what's uh, missing now. The NBA draft at the last senior that was taken in the top five of the NBA draft um, was um, not was back that back in 2006. That's how much guys are net, or teams are now looking for potential instead of players that are going to help them right then and there. So, because usually if you have four years of college and you, you're going to have more of an education of the game, which can help. Now that now now coaches are not only responsible for winning games to keep their jobs and go make deep playoff runs to keep their jobs, but now they're now given the task of having to educate the game to the 19-year-olds who are entering the league because when they were in high school and playing in their AAU leagues, the ball was just rolled out for them and said, go play. So that's where I was going with all that. <laughs> yeah, no, completely. So let's uh, – the, the 1995 draft, the year before – uh, it was a very interesting class. You had Joe Smith, Antonio McDyess, Jerry Stackhouse, Rasheed Wallace, and Kevin Garnett as the first five picks in the 1995 draft, which took place in Toronto Skydome. The 96 draft, which we're talking about, uh, took place back on June 26, 1996, in East Rutherford, New Jersey, right down the street from me, uh, broadcasted live on TNT. Um, just to give some people a little bit of background here, on the order, uh, the Philadelphia 76ers had the right to win the lottery. Uh, Toronto was number two. Vancouver was three. And uh, Milwaukee and Minnesota were four and five, respectively. And Boston, number six. So the Clippers, seven. The Nets, eight. Dallas, nine. And the Pacers, ten, to round out the top ten. So you and I discussed on how we were going to discuss this a little bit. And a lot of picks. To, to go through, but let's let's start the number one pick in the draft. I, I, I should have David Stern audio clip here with the first pick in the '96 draft. <laughs> the Philadelphia right. Sixers presents <laughs> Allen Iverson from Georgetown University. Now, Allen Iverson yep. is a very, very we we can do a whole show on Allen Iverson. Uh, totally, because he's had such, a lot of stuff. I can't tell you that I know about Allen Iverson. <laughs> <laughs> There's but, some history that's just uh, best left. Uh, you know, buried. Left alone. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we're not, well, obviously we, we don't want to bury guys, but like Allen Iverson has always been through the face of controversy, even when he was at top of his game. Allen Iverson yeah. still was, like, since he entered the league, 
And they always show him during his rookie season doing that crossover on Michael. You know, I've always was been one Wasn't of those. Wasn't he guys labeled the Jordan was. Stopper? Was he the one that a lot of people were labeled the Jordan Stopper over a period of time? But wasn't Allen yeah, Iverson uh, one of the guys that was that carried that label briefly? <laughs> he carried a lot of labels. <laughs> he carried a lot of labels. I think the I think the problem with Allen Iverson was he, not only the fact that he played in Philadelphia. You know, he grew up in Hampton, Virginia. He was only six feet tall, 165 pounds. Played in Georgetown. Obviously, his early problems that he had while he was in college is self-explanatory. You don't have to go over all that. You know the you know the, you know he, back in '93 was involved in a lot of different altercations at a bowling alley in Virginia. Got in trouble. And then he was able to play in Georgetown, and then he came across to the NBA. And you know he you know, scored 37 points in that memorable crossover on Michael Jordan. He broke Will Chamberlain's rookie record in three straight games with at least 40 points. Um, five, you know, doing so in five straight games, including a 50-point effort against Cleveland during his rookie year. He won the Rookie of the Year that year. What was your Plus, take? that guy could take a beating, were... man. He was so so small, and he got hammered, and he just was. I mean, you couldn't keep him down. He just jumped back up, kept going. Uh, and I think it's part of that tough upbringing, as you alluded to briefly, um, that it was very hard to to get Iverson down. He just was extremely yeah. resilient, extremely tough. And for his size, I mean, it's unbelievable. Six foot in elevator shoes. <laughs> and the guy just took a pounding and kept going like nothing happened. Well, you were covering the league at this point in time. What was the perception of Allen Iverson coming into the league? Well, there, hey, you look at Iverson, and you there's even with the incredible, as we're going to dig in a little bit, the incredible first and even second round picks that happened in the 96 draft, there's only one player that you could really say maybe should have been number one over Iverson it's an inarguable pick because the only player that you could say hands down, no doubt should have gone above Allen Iverson is Kobe, but he didn't go until the 13th pick. He was coming out of high school. No one had any clue what kind of player he was going to be. The Charlotte Hornets told him famously that they just didn't have a role for him. So they traded him to the Lakers for Vlade Divac. Kobe took that personally. I think it made him a, a tougher player, made him play harder. But, I mean, take that aside, you can't make a complete argument and say Allen Iverson should not have been the number one pick. He was a franchise player for one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference for years uh, and was an incredibly exciting player to watch, despite the background noise that went on uh, in his background. When he was on the court, he was uh, something to see. He was a Hall of Famer. Uh, I saw, you know, I got to cover the NBA more towards Allen's decline, and I saw him. I remember seeing him in East Rutherford, New Jersey, uh, during his last season in the league, and just watching him sit there in the locker room, openly admit to reporters that he just doesn't feel like he has it anymore. That's yeah. like the telling point of an athlete. And like he was, you know, he had gotten like you said, he's pound for pound. He was taking a beating for all those seasons. Uh, Hall of Famer, no doubt. One of the guys who carried, helped carry the league 
you know, uh, I know, I know Gary Ade, who, who hosts the NBA show, always um, makes fun of me when I make this, make that bridge comment between Jordan and LeBron. Certain guys helped carry the league for that bridge because nobody knew that LeBron was going to be able to carry the league. But he felt like when LeBron entered the league, that was your new placeholder because he was on the Eastern Conference. All eyes were going to be on him. When he traveled to cities, it was like the Beatles were coming to town, just like it was when yeah. Jordan came to town. But, but during that time frame, because Kobe was on the West Coast and you weren't able to watch Kobe all the time, you got to see a lot of Allen Iverson on those TNT games, a lot of those uh, Eastern Conference broadcasts, because Allen Iverson was an attraction, just like Vince Carter was an attraction. Allen Iverson was six foot tall going into the land of the Giants and succeeding. And a lot of people were rooting for them during that heat when Allen Iverson led that team and carried that team to the NBA Finals. And they shocked the Lakers in that game one. They lost the next four. But, man, like, nobody, nobody was outperforming Allen Iverson at that point in time. Absolutely right. And, you know, when you look at the history of the NBA draft and you look at who the number one picks were over the years, there are many years where you're like, who? I mean, let's look at 2017. Markel Fultz, he might get some minutes in Orlando this year. Like, he immediately, ironically, Philly also, he immediately didn't, like, he wasn't the transformative player. Andrew Wiggins in 2014, Anthony Bennett in 2013. Uh, there are a lot of guys here that you're like, really? Um Okay, Michael Oluwakandi is one that if it was a contract year, man, he was incredible. But any other year, you're like, where did that guy go? There are a few years where you just have an automatic uh, transformative player available in the draft. And, and perhaps 2019, I really think Zion Williamson is going to be one of those players. But when you look at all the picks, and especially in more recent history – you haven't drafted a guy who turned your franchise around. And Allen Iverson turned that franchise around practically overnight. Yeah, it was very, very difficult to find a, a transcending star like that. Um, obviously, well, when we do our Allen, Iver, Allen Iverson episode, we will break him down a lot more. Uh, let's keep going with the draft. The number two pick, who, again, there was a lot of debate because the Sixers picked Stackhouse the, uh, the previous year. Marcus Camby, and you know Marcus Camby, who's believe it or not, coached by John Calipari out in uh, out in Maryland. <laughs> Pretty crazy when you think about that. Mm-hmm. You know he uh, he didn't have a bad NBA career. Six second. Well, he played know, seventeen by years. He, he was one of those guys yeah. that just always had a job, kind of like Jawan Howard. Like the guy just never went away because he's a solid veteran. Uh, and I'll tell you my favorite Marcus Camby story. He was with Portland when Brandon Roy was there and was having those bad knee problems. And I knew Brandon very, very well and LaMarcus Aldridge very, very well. And I'm sitting with Mark LaMarcus uh, after a game in the Dallas Visitors locker room. And we're talking, and he's frustrated. He's like, you know, the, the all-star results had just come out, and he wasn't there. And I said, LaMarcus, let me tell you something. We're not recording this. It's not for a story. I'm just talking to a guy, you know, that I know. And Marcus Camby sitting across 
the, right across the locker room, which in this case is about four feet because the Mavs visitor locker room is ridiculous. Uh, so uh, I'm saying, LaMarcus, you want to know why you're not on the all-star list? Because you don't, you don't want it bad enough. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, you don't understand that this is your team now. You haven't taken ownership of this team. He said, it's not my team. It's Brandon's. I said, LaMarcus, this is not Brandon Roy's team anymore. Brandon Roy is not Brandon Roy. You're going to be lucky to get a half a season out of him. This is your team, and until you recognize it, you won't be an all-star, and the Blazers won't be a winning team. And Marcus Camby leaned over, and I didn't even know he was listening, and he said, you need to listen to this man. <laughs> and you go look at the next season – LaMarcus's stats blew up. I'm not trying to take credit. LaMarcus gets all the credit. He worked hard and got there, and he's been an all-star ever since. But Marcus Camby was that kind of guy. He was even when I mean, he's a great player in his prime, a great player. Toronto had some good teams. He was great with Stackhouse. It was a great pairing. But even when his game declined, you still wanted Marcus Camby on your team because that's the kind of thing young players need to hear. And he knew it, and he knew when to say something, what, you know, what to say. Uh, and those kind of guys are rare. And when you find one, they're in the league for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, like you look at it, he, you know, he drafted by Toronto in 96. He was there until 1998. Then he went over to the New York Knicks, played there with the NBA, into, into the NBA Finals, was there until 2002. Uh, went over – uh, went over and in a, in a deal to the Denver Nuggets and played there for six seasons with Carmelo Anthony, poor guy. Um, went, <laughs> went to the Los Angeles. Had a hard time getting the ball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Didn't see the ball. Gave it to Carmelo. Never saw it again. We'll, we'll talk about Carmelo during our <laughs> Carmelo episode and the uh, also the 03 draft. Um, then he did two years with the Clippers. <laughs> Another two years with the Blazers. He spent the season with the Houston Rockets. Went back to the New York Knicks in 2012-2013 season. And that was a pretty much a wrap at that point. Um, uh, on, July 20, on July 10th, 2013, Gamby, Steve Novak, and Quentin Richardson in a future first-round uh, pick and two future second-round picks were traded uh, to, from the Knicks to Toronto for Andrea Bargnani. Uh, the Raptors then uh, bought out Camby's contract. Camby re-signed with the Rockets, but the Rockets waived them uh, during camp. So that was the end of Marcus Camby, who really, if you look at his stat line, never averaged more than 15 a game, and that was his rookie season. Um, block shots, rebounding, had quite a few seasons where he was averaging 13 boards a game. In the playoffs, now, I, I towards that time frame, Bill. I think you may be able to agree with me. When we when we got past the second Jordan three P, the center position had deteriorated down, where a guy like Marcus Camby can put those types of numbers up and still be very effective in the outcome of the game. Unlike a, a Patrick Ewing who had to have, or, or, or even a team where everything was centered around them. Marcus was able to adjust and contribute, but not be the guy. Well, that's exactly it. You you couldn't draw a better comparison. Marcus Camby was a center, a great center, at a time where centers didn't get the ball. You know, I mean, it, it was during that time when the league was transitioning from the, a center game to a point guard game. And so, no, Marcus 
his job was never to score. Now, he could. He'd get the offensive rebound, put it in, but that wasn't his job. His job was to rebound. His job was to defend. His job was to be what he was, a very tall man with very long arms, and deter the opposition from just having a, a free run to the rim. And that's where the center position has remained uh, since that time, is where if you have a guy like, I mean, Clint Capella is a great example in Houston. How many times are they going to run a – they are never, ever, especially not now, they're never going to run a play for Clint Capella. His job is to set a screen for Harden or Westbrook. Uh, you look at Willie Cauley-Stein in Golden State. They're not going to run – how many times are they going to give him the ball and say go create something? That is not going to happen. His job is to rebound, missed threes, and put them home, and that's it. Uh, and that is the job of the modern-day center and can be, I think, spanned that because uh, when he was drafted, it was kind of the tail end of that era. And so most of his career, he spent doing that, and he did it quite well, 17 seasons in the league. I mean, that's it. Very involved in charity. Marcus, like you said, was a very good, uh, very good pro, very good for the younger guys. All, all great pro. Never, never going to be a Hall of Fame guy, but certainly uh, a guy a lot of these teams valued for all those years. Um, with the third pick in the draft, this is very interesting. Out of California, um, Sharif Abdul-Rahim. Uh, he was came out after his freshman year, and it was very. I don't know. He is one of those guys. He reminds me a lot of. I'm trying to get the right comparison. He always reminds you of maybe like a Kevin Willis when he was in Atlanta that you look up on the scoreboard and you yeah. saw that he had like 20, 25 points. They don't even remember <laughs> really how he got those 25 points. You know, <laughs> I hate to say it like that, but it was really the truth. Like he was a 20 plus per game guy for a lot of his career. You know, you look at it, his rookie year in Vancouver, 18 a game, 22 a game, 23 a game, 20 a game. 20 oh, a game. he was, he was great in Vancouver. Yeah. He was, uh, he put up all-star numbers in Vancouver. He really did. And then he was consistent in Atlanta, too, 21-19-20. And then he moved over to uh, to Portland. Now, what you know, you were covering the league at that point. He came in the league. What was your general your general reaction to a guy like Sharif when he uh, when he came to the league, especially since he was in Canada in that first part? So a lot of people didn't get to watch him as much. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, the thing about Sharif Abdurrahim is he. I did a <laughs> I did a, a column one time for Swish Magazine called the NBA's Most Wanted, and we looked at guys who had been traded a whole bunch of times. They played for a whole bunch of teams, and they were never like star players. They were always like every team needs someone like Sharif Abdurrahim. And I think while he started his career more as as a, a second, maybe sometimes even a first option. Over the bulk of his career, you talk about he played for Vancouver, Atlanta, Portland, Sacramento. He gave you a skill set that every team needs. And so he'd be involved in in deals and teams wanted him because it was like, well, we we need somebody that is a capable scorer, that can rebound, uh, you know, and that he's one of just all-around guys. I liken him to Jerome Kersey. I liken him to Draymond Green with offense. Um, or I mean, who knows? Draymond Green in a situation where they ask him to score—that's <laughs> not his job. But he was a guy who would do everything. Also, like Camby, tremendous locker room presence. That's why he's still in the league as an assistant coach, 
and probably will be a, a head coach one day or front office guy. Very uh, good head on his shoulders. Understood many dynamics of the game besides just playing. And I think that's what, I mean, teams got that. When when you got Sharif Abdurrahim, you got an extremely valuable piece of your team who wasn't the star, wasn't the go-to guy, but was but made the go-to guy's job easier. On June 27, 2001, the Atlanta Hawks reached an agreement to acquire Abdul Rahim and the 27th overall pick in the 2001 NBA draft from Vancouver in exchange for Brevin Knight, Lorenzen Wright, and Paul Gasol, the third overall pick in the 2001 NBA draft. Abdul Rahim's return to his hometown and expected partnership with sophomore Jason Terry provided a significant amount of buzz around the league. When he made that move over to Atlanta, it was definitely one of interest, so I'll tell you that much right now. Um, they, they finished 33-49, and 49, but his performance, including he scored 50 points in the game. You know, there's, it's a rare, it's a rare, rare club in that, especially at that point in the NBA, being able to contribute and do that, have that type of game. He was a special player for them at that point in time. He was, and, and again, uh, there's not a pick in this draft outside of Kobe, I don't think where you go, clearly that was not a good pick. That was a great pick. Third pick overall, if you could give me Sharif Abdul-Rahim in next summer's NBA draft, if he's on the board at number three, I take him. There's no question. That, and that's the thing. You want to look back at the pick and go, that was a good pick. And that was a great pick for the Vancouver Grizzlies. He then got traded uh, to Portland. He was sent along with Theo Ratliff and Dan Dickow to the Portland Trailblazers on February 9, 2004, in exchange for Rasheed Wallace and Wesley Person. Uh, he didn't really have a great season out there. Uh, during the 2005 offseason, this is the part that I remember. Uh, you and I, I think, spoke about this briefly um, at one point or another. During the 2005 offseason, he was traded via sign and trade in agreement to the, to the New Jersey Nets for a first-round draft pick, which Portland planned to trade to Phoenix for Barbosa. But then on August 4th, through a news conference, was planned to announce the postponement of his arrival. It was revealed that he had failed the required physical due to scar tissue found in his knee. The trade was put on hold pending a second opinion from other medical sources. And then on August 7th, Abdul Rahim was quoted saying, I don't feel like I want to be in net. He felt his knee was a non-issue, claiming that he never missed a game in his entire career because of the knee injury. Two days later, it was announced that the Nets decided to rescind the trade. What was your reaction when you heard this story come out? I was, I was knee deep in it. I'll tell you how, what my reaction was, but well, these are the types of stories when players are sitting there saying it's not a big deal, but the team officials are like, well, it is a big deal. What was your take on when you heard this story? I don't remember that. I mean, I remember him having issues, but anything related to the Eastern Conference at that point, I was not particularly into, yeah, okay. but when but when you hear someone say, and, and you know, this, <laughs> there are quite a few, unfortunately, examples of this. When somebody says they don't want to play for a team, maybe he's the reason I started thinking this way, but I'm sorry, some team wants to pay you a hell of a lot of money to play a sport. You then say, thank you, and play as hard as you can <laughs> play for that team. And I don't care where that team, I don't care if it's you know China or Australia, I don't care where it is. Some team thinks enough of you to want to pay you millions of dollars to play a game that you would happily play for free. Your job is to be like, thank you. I, you know, I really appreciate it. And I'm going to give you everything I got. So I think that 
you know, that whole scenario, we've, we've seen it, I think, two or three times where some players are like, nah, I mean, come on. <laughs> it's awfully hard to, to stomach that. Well, what ended up happening from, from our end here in Jersey was that was the year that they just got done being eliminated in the playoffs. Uh, they finished 41-41, losing to the Miami Heat. Uh, Vince Carter had just arrived to New Jersey and revitalized his own career, and the Nets wanted to get a power forward. Sharif Abdul-Rahim was Jason Kidd's first choice because he wanted to have a guy he can just dump it down into the paint and score. Me personally, looking from a, again, armchair quarterback, basketball <laughs> standpoint, there was another power forward who was a free agent at that time. There's two more. One was Danielle Marshall, who was not the fit for that team whatsoever. No. And the other, because they had Nines, they had another Kristich who was who averaged 17 points a game during his no I'm sorry 12 points a game during his rookie year he finished with 17 the following season, but 12 points a game his rookie season, you really don't need to have two scoring big men you need to have a guy who's going to fill in the blank when Kristich is shooting jump shots you need to have somebody who's able to rebound the ball, so the guy who I kept on thinking was the perfect fit was Stromile Swift. The Stromile Swift, all oh, yeah. you're asking him to do is block shots, rebound the ball, and run the fast break, and Jason will find you if you're doing that. And Stro, I knew well because he was obviously in Houston for a while, and uh, that was he was that. You're exactly right. That is the perfect role for Stromile Swift. Yeah. So if you if if they would have not gone after Sharif Abdul-Rahim, and even Stromile Swift said during his press conference in Houston. I'm here because the Nets decided they wanted to go with Sharif Abdul-Rahim. And I was like, yeah. okay. <laughs> that that would have been a perfect fit because everyone complained about how they lost Kenyon Martin to Denver in that whole situation. You could have had the exact yep. replacement of exactly what Kenyon did, just with younger legs, in the, someone from the same draft class as him. Right Absolutely. There. So we went through that whole thing, and, I, and they ended up with nobody. That's what ended right. up happening. So uh, after that, Sharif went signed with the Sacramento Kings, where he ended up, you know, if this is where the story gets a little sad. He, he played 72 games in 2005-2006. So instead of being a net, he was a king. The following year, he played uh, 80 games, averaged 12 points a game his first year in Sacramento, nine his second year, then only played six games in his final season in the NBA in 2007-2008. And he averaged 1.7 points a game. Obviously, the the the, um, the wheels fell off this car heavily. Apparently, the Nets were right because he had a lot of issues with his knee. And being in the league for as many years as he was, played over 830 regular season games, played six games in the NBA playoffs. So, yeah, that's one of the sadder stories in the league in that in that sense. But yeah. Moving on, moving on now to the fourth pick in the in the draft is a guy who I bet you another guy we can probably do a whole show on negatively is Stefan Marbury. No doubt. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> year, he, uh, you know, one year, one year in uh, college, he came out after his freshman season. Originally, this was the Milwaukee Bucks pick, and it, he ended up going down to uh, Minnesota. What are your impressions, your reactions, and your stories about Stefan Marbury? Well, Marbury's one of those guys, and I don't know what his upbringing was. I suspect it was probably similar to Allen Iverson's. Um, so many of these kids, you know, I mean, he was a kid at the time, not now, but 
they have very difficult childhoods where they grow up in very difficult situations and it creates, um, you know, I don't want to be, I'm not trying to be negative. I don't want to be negative at all. Stefan Marbury was a hell of a player, but he had a lot of problems. And I know I've spent years working with uh, kids from the inner city on a volunteer basis, as well as uh, in public schools where I help them with, I've got a master's degree in behavior management, behavior analysis. And you look at why people act the way they do. And 99.9% of the time, it's environmental. I have no doubt, and I don't know this because Marbury had a kind of a chip on his shoulder. It wasn't somebody I always enjoyed talking to. Uh, but I have no doubt that his situation growing up must have been tough because it was reflected in the choices that he made off the court. Uh, and I have always gravitated towards the people who make, because there's so many, there are so many good people in the NBA and in sports, I'm sure in general, so many good people that are role models that are really concerned. I mean, Dirk Nowitzki is a classic example. Brandon Roy, incredible example. Uh, LaMarcus Aldridge, there are a lot of guys, more guys than not care deeply for their community, understand that they are role models and do everything they can do. Elijah one, same way, Drexler, same way. Um, and understand that, you know, they have kind of a, a responsibility to the community that they serve. Uh, but Stefan didn't have that, and he did do things that were unfortunate off the court that stained his reputation as a player. But on the court, I mean, there was a period of time where he was among the best point guards in the league. I mean, he, he could do it from – he could score from anywhere, uh, was a good setup man, and had, there were some very good teams around him. Um, they just never got to that – to the championship level. And you wonder – I always wonder this, you know, winning a championship has a lot to do with character. And sometimes I wonder if character also prevents teams that look so good on paper from ever quite getting there uh, when it comes to June. Well, I got to tell you, he, he had a storied career in the NBA. Started off in Minnesota. Uh, where he played with Kevin Durant. I'm oh, sorry, Kevin Garnett, not Kevin Durant. Sorry about that. Kevin yeah, Durant. That's Kevin the... Garnett. Kevin Garnett. And David Falk, super agent David Falk was his agent. Marbury sort of pushed mm-hmm. himself out of Minnesota, asked to be closer to home, where he ended up getting traded to the Nets in a three-way deal. Terrell Brandon, there's a name from the past, gets traded to Minnesota. Yeah. Sam, Cassell ends, Sam Cassell ends up in Milwaukee. And then um, he ends up with the Nets, and he you know makes his first All-Star game. Scores a career-high 50 points and lost against the Lakers. I remember that very well. Uh, and the Nets never made the playoffs while he was there. And then from there, he got traded uh, to Phoenix Suns for Jason Kidd. He went over there to Phoenix for Johnny Newman. Um, and they made the playoffs his first year. Uh, team was rookie, rookie of the year, Amari Stoudemire and Sean Marion. Uh, went to the playoffs. And the following year, they just they fell apart. And he got traded to the New York Knicks. And... He had an up and down roller coaster relationship with the franchise and the fan base. And, you know, man, I got to tell you, being around here and being what, seeing what he went through with the Knicks, you know, you can go around, talk about the situation he had with Larry Brown. You can talk about the up and down relationship he had 
with with all the coaches he had with Don Chaney. But then when Mike D'Antoni yep. got here, he D'Antoni signed Chris Duhon, and um, when D'Antoni told Marbury that he had an opportunity to play approximately 35 minutes in the game if he wanted to, Marbury apparently feeling that he and the Knicks had gone their own ways and refused. Following that, on December 1st uh, of that year, Stephon Marbury was banned from attending any Knicks practices or games. He actually showed up in Los Angeles when the Knicks played the Lakers and sat courtside. And then yeah, eventually on February, on, on February 24th, 2009, the Knicks and Marbury agreed to a buyout, and he cleared waivers two days later, and he signed for the Boston Celtics. For the remainder of the 2009 season, he played against Indiana in his, in his first game, scoring eight points on four six shooting, two assists in 13 minutes. Marbury got to wear number eight as his number usual number three had been retired in honor of Dennis Johnson. He was offered a one-year contract by the Celtics for the 2009-2010 season for a veterans minimum. However, he did not agree to a contract. He later announced that he was going to take the year off from the NBA to handle his business ventures. And he ended up in China, and he's a very big superstar in China. Now he's coaching out there. It's nice. It's a nice ending for a troubled NBA story for a guy like Stephon Marbury, um, who, 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 who liked the love. He wanted the love, and he found it in another country. <laughs> I hate to say it like that. Yeah, it's true. I mean, hey, to his credit, he did find it. I will remember yeah. most about his career the time in Phoenix, because that team, there are many teams, of course, over the years that never won a championship, but were incredibly good. <laughs> and that Phoenix team was really good uh, with him there. And yeah. of course, Amari Stoudemire was, was fantastic for years. Uh, but, you know, I, I try to look at the positives and like you said, Hey, he found himself in China and they love him and that's where they make all of his, the clothes that he sells anyway. So, uh, you know, it, it turned out that he did have a happy ending. It just wasn't in the NBA. Yeah. Um, the next pick is one that, again, this is a whole other show we can do, and that's Ray Allen. Uh, drafted by the Minnesota Timberwolves, <laughs> traded to the Milwaukee Bucks. And, man, his story was something, wasn't it? I mean, he played very well in Milwaukee. Jesus Shuttleworth. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, he was one of the first. You're only gonna do, Jordan, he was, if you're only going to do one thing right? extremely well, be the best at it. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, Ray yeah. Allen was the until uh, Steph Curry came along. Ray Allen, I'll tell you what, he was the best. The three point shooting, I mean, just that that group that he played with in uh, Seattle was absolutely oh, God, yeah. phenomenal. Another great team that never won a title. Uh, and everywhere he went, you know, even in Miami, he the reason LeBron one of those rings he's got, he can thank Ray Allen. Because uh, that guy was in the league forever, and the entire team time he was in the league, he was just an incredible three-point shooter. Also amazing in the in the community. I mean, if you if you want <laughs> you want to second guess a, a draft pick, you better not make it Ray Allen because he's got the resume, uh, and that guy was for real. He probably can still outshoot half the players in the league, half the shooting guards in the league. Oh, no doubt. I mean, he, you know, he, in 2005, 2004, 2005, signed a five-year, $80 million contract extension to stay uh, in Seattle. was very loyal to that organization. Uh, and then they moved over to Boston, won a championship with the Big Three. Uh, he was a part of, the, I guess, the initial Big Three, right? Like the, the Paul Pierce, Kevin yeah. Garnett, and Ray Allen. He was one of the guys right. who yeah. really 
when Rondo yeah, was still a, a very good player. <laughs> <laughs> we were we were just talking about Rondo earlier in the day. Uh, that if you're if you're, ever, if you're going to Lakers media day, you might get Rondo because you ain't getting anyone else one on one. Yeah. So you know, <laughs> you know, obviously, well, I think we'll we'll end up doing a Ray Allen episode, but I, he signed with Miami. He rejected a, a, a two year deal from the Celtics, and he went over to Miami, played there for a few years. Um, work with LeBron. How much of an impact do you think Ray Allen had on LeBron James and Chris Bosh? Well, I'll tell you, LeBron had a lot of maturity issues um, early in the league. And I remember, I, I just avoided him. I mean, if he, I remember one time his rookie year, uh, this was in Orlando. I don't know why I remember that. But uh, I walked in the visitor's locker room, and there's LeBron. And he's just being a horse's ass. I mean, <laughs> and He's sitting by himself, and he's just – his ego was so ridiculous. Granted, you know, Sports Illustrated labeled him the king before he had accomplished anything. So he comes in the league with that ex- expectation. But a couple things happened. Ray Allen is a – I'm sure Ray Allen and Shane Battier, and Shane told me this. Shane Battier, a very good friend of mine, um, you know, you had to you had to reel him in and, and really show LeBron – that just being really good is not enough to get a championship. And I know Hakeem Olajuwon was part of that process because I had that conversation with Hakeem uh, about all the guys that were coming to work with him. And he said, LeBron came after they lost to Dallas in the finals and said, I don't understand why I'm the best player. I can't win the championship. And Hakeem said, you don't respect the game. And that's why you're getting powder on everybody. You're all about yourself. Uh, you don't respect the game. You don't respect the history, where it came from. And I'm sure without knowing, I haven't had that conversation with Ray Allen, but I can tell you absolutely Ray Allen was just as big a part of that maturity process because LeBron desperately needed it, and he did mature in Miami. He went from great talent, not a winner, not a you know big game winner, to a big game winner during his time in Miami. And it's not a coincidence that Ray Allen was in his ear all the time. Well, he he did retire after the 2014 season. LeBron went back to Cleveland, and that was sort of the end. He decided, he was thinking about coming back with either the Celtics or the Bucks, about possibly coming in. He ended up opting to uh, retire. Uh, he sort of showed up and played at the NBA All-Star Celebrity Game this past year. Uh, of course, in September 2018, he was inducted to the Hall of Fame. And, of course, we, as we joked around before, uh, he started he co-starred with Denzel Washington in the Spike Lee film. He got game. <laughs> One of the first ones to really get over there in that, um, to make the crossover from the NBA into film. Jordan did it. But there wasn't a lot of other guys who did not it. Not well. He, was, he also was – no, not well, not as well as he did. Not that, and listen, Shaq let's did not it too, but Michael not Jordan. well. <laughs> yeah, well, let's, let's not say that Michael Jordan's performance – Space Jam was Oscar-worthy, uh, Oscar you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> you know, and then he also was in um, Uncle Drew, which came out in 2015. So at Ray Allen, a successful career, very involved in the community as well. Um, you know, he, his, son, his son suffers from different illnesses, and he is very, very big with his foundation. So kudos to Ray Allen on that. 
Um, some of these guys we're gonna we're gonna go through because you know we're, we try to keep these episodes for about an hour. We might go a little over, but we might have to do a part two of this uh, for next week or maybe the following week. But we look through the next couple names. You know, Anton Walker had had a, a an interesting career in the NBA. Very immature type of player throughout his time, and he was also the subject of ESPN's. 30 for 30 broke. Yeah. A man who made that much money has that and much. Broke. Uh, he lost. He was one of the guys who sold one of his NBA. He sold his NBA championship rings because he couldn't. Right. You know, you know, Can you he imagine? Came out of, I mean, you know, born out of Chicago, born from Chicago, went to Kentucky, you know, played in the league, for, you know, played for Boston, drafted by Boston, made it to the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, in 2002 against the Nets, eliminated in 2003 in the second round against the Nets. That was his team with Paul Pierce. Found himself in Dallas for uh, the 2003-2004 season. Uh, and then he played for the Hawks. Found, this, found himself back in Boston in 2005. And then won a championship in Miami. Uh, he was there for two, two years, 2005-2007. Found himself in Minnesota and then playing overseas. Um, your, your opinion on the legacy of what Antoine Walker was? Well, he's certainly not a obviously not a Hall of Fame player. Uh, I watched him quite a bit in the Dallas part of his career, uh, and a guy that is going to give you solid numbers, but is not going to be. There are some guys that just by them being on your team, Ray Allen, great example. Just by them being on your team, your team is better. Antoine didn't make his team better. He'd give you numbers. Oh my God, in Dallas, he shot the ball. <laughs> Just did, never met a shot he didn't like, but it didn't help the team win. In fact, sometimes his numbers came at the expense of the team. But he could put points on the board, and if you if he had ever been in a situation where a team was one piece away, he could have been that piece. But he couldn't be the guy. That's just not the kind of player that he was, mentally or game wise. And, you know, it's not a knock. There's a lot of players like that. Um, but to say, was he worthy of a number six pick? Absolutely. I mean, there's been a lot of players drafted at number six who didn't spend 12 years in the NBA, and probably 10 of those were very productive years, you know. In 2009, Walker was charged with three felony counts of writing bad checks related to gambling debts being carried at three Las Vegas casinos. He was arrested on July 15th. In Vegas, the charges stemmed from over $800,000 in gambling debts. Walker was in yeah. South Lake Tahoe to play an American Century Golf uh, Classic the following day. On June 30th, 2010, Walker entered a plea of not guilty on a felony of bad check charges stemming from his failure to pay 770000 in gambling losses to Caesars Palace and two other casinos in Vegas, according to the Las Vegas Review-Journal. A year later, he pleaded not guilty to one felony count on passing a bad check under the plea agreement. He did not face prison term and was put on probation and worked towards repaying the debt. Um, just to follow up on that, on May 18, 2010, Walker filed for Chapter 7, Bankruptcy Protection in the South District of Florida as a case number. And to give the case numbers here, I'm not going to do that over there. With total assets of $4.3 million and debts of $12.7 million. The following listed four pieces of real estate, including $2.3 million Miami home that was 
underwater with mortgage of $3.6 million and three other properties in Chicago, one listed for $1.4 million. Nazi Mohammed paid half the fee of Walter's bankruptcy attorney. Walter's championship ring had to be sold off in August 2013. Walker announced that he was debt-free between 1996 and 2009. Walker earned more than $108 million from the NBA salaries. He's now working in broadcasting on 120 Sports. He was also hired by the SEC Network as a basketball analyst. So there's a little bit of a happy ending for uh, for Walker, he's working. He's, he's paid off his debt. He's now debt free. He worked all of us, and now he can now try to enjoy the second part of his life. I can't see him being a poster child for what uh, an NBA player should be, though, uh, for these young guys. No, but he is a poster child for why the NBA developed the program that they have to kind of mentor players on how to handle the kind of money that they're getting. Uh, you know, because you've got. I mean, nobody, most people don't understand what that kind of money is like, but you've got a lot of kids coming off the streets uh, that are all of a sudden you've got millions and millions of dollars and they don't understand. Uh, I mean, I remember a buddy of mine that worked around the Sixers telling me that Iverson had like 15 people live in his house because he didn't know how to say no. Uh, And you, the pressure um, you think, oh, wow, all of a sudden it's like I've won the lottery. I know exactly what I'd do with it. Well, yeah, but I'm coming from a sound family. My dad's a retired financial planner. If, if I got a million dollars, I ain't never working again, neither is my kid. I mean, and just for fun, but you're not going to take a job because you need the money. But these kids coming from the streets, you hand them a, you know millions of dollars, and the sharks come out of the woodwork to get a piece. <laughs> And so the NBA has developed this program for rookies as a whole. It's a rookie program that I'm so happy they did, and I've been suggesting it for a long time, that they need a mentor. They need someone who, uh, from the league or from the team, the Pacers did a, an amazing job with this uh, when David Morey was the general manager there, the, the Paul George era of the Pacers. Um, you've got to have somebody who, does not, who cannot take money from the player giving the player advice about money because most of these guys don't have a clue and you hate to see them. And I know that that show you were talking about has NFL guys and baseball guys, but Antoine Walker is one of those guys. It's the reason that program came about because it was desperately needed to help players deal with the pressure that comes along with that kind of money that I don't think the average person really can, can conceive of. Yeah, and it's, I'm glad they do have that because there's been so many casualties and so many different stories that uh, no, it's just sort of too many. There's been too many sad casualties in the NBA because of it. But again, he's another guy we can probably we can probably do an episode just on those types of stories, and we probably will. Uh, the next pick in the draft, one I, I don't think we're going to end up really spending too much time on. Uh, is Lorenzen Wright, um, who his story came to a tragic ending about nine years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, he he came out highly talented. Uh, you know, went to Memphis for uh, for two years. He was the seventh overall pick of this draft. I don't think he really lives up to any type of real expectation level. You know, I'm not trying to speak bad about the departed, but there was a whole bunch of whole bunch of I guess miss missteps with him you know he played for the Clippers 
He was moved to the Atlanta Hawks. He's been traded to the Grizzlies. Went back to the Hawks. Uh, he was another another involved with another big trade with Mike Bibby. Uh, career averages eight points a game, six boards. More of his personal life and his disappearance and his death took more of his what he is more famous for than his NBA career. It finished off his his uh, career as a member of the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2008-2009. He certainly made money in the NBA. Uh, it's just a shame that his story ended the way it did. Yeah, and he's one of the one of the guys that is not a not a star player ever. Um, he, but he was always somebody that did things uh, that uh, it was a utility type players, which you hear that called a lot. Like, I mean, Jerome Kersey was always considered a utility player, uh, and I remember that because I grew up watching the Blazers and Rockets primarily. Mario Ellie was a utility player. Guys that are not never the star, but do a lot of things that a team needs. You know, you need the star, of course, but you need the guys who aren't concerned about touches and they're going to play hard no matter what. And that's the category that Lorenzen Wright fell into. Um, and, yeah, I mean, as you say, his the tragic end. But he did have a, a reasonably good career, certainly good enough to justify being the seventh pick in the draft. I think we say the same thing for the next pick in the draft by the New Jersey Nets. Absolutely. The Nets, the Nets picked up uh, Kerry Kittles. Kerry went through um, a good rookie season. When they bought Stephon Marbury uh, over to the Nets, he really struggled to stay healthy. He played only 46 games during the 98-99 season. You know, he, uh, he, was, he was beat up. Uh, when Jason Kidd came in, it pretty much resurrected his career, but Kerry Kittles was never – a guy who's going to give you a lot of points. His second year in the league, when they played the Chicago Bulls in the uh, first round of the, play- the playoffs back in 98, he averaged 17 points a game. After that, he really never averaged more than, you know, 13 a game. Uh, but he was a Well, Kerry Kittles wasn't a guy that you could you put the ball in his hands and say, go create offense. That He wasn't that kind of player. But playing next to Jason Kidd, he was certainly – I mean, Kidd made a lot of players better – obviously over the course of his career, but give him the opportunity to play off of Jason Kidd. And, hey, he delivered. And you've got to have those guys. You know, you can put Jason Kidd on a bad team. They won't win. But you put Jason Kidd on a team that has players like Kerry Kittles, and he'll get the most out of them. And he was perfect for that situation. He missed the whole 2000-2001 season with injuries, came back, and averaged 13 points. 13 points a game during the 2001-2002 year when Jason arrived, played all 82 games, uh, averaged a career 12 points a game in the playoffs. Very, very reliable player when healthy. Finished his, uh, his career as a member of the, uh, of the Clippers, only played 11 games, six points a game, retired due to injuries. Um, look, I like Kerry. I still see Kerry every once in a while. He's now an assistant coach at Princeton University. Um, Next couple picks, we're going to sort of just glaze over them, really, because there wasn't a lot going on with them. Uh, Samaki Walker was picked by the Dallas Mavericks. You, you might remember Samaki a little bit more than the rest of us do, because I don't remember him at all. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. do. I got to know him a little bit. Uh, yeah, he was Dallas, but his time in San Antonio was really more. Um, he was great for that system because he's another one of those guys, one of those utility guys. He'll do a lot of rebounding, a great defender, uh, great for – a particular system, but not a guy that you plug in just anywhere. He wasn't very effective for Dallas. He was very effective for San Antonio. 
Um, he ended up having a uh, not a long career though in this league. He ended up only only playing, I think. Well, he had a longer career than I thought he did. He played for Dallas, San Antonio, played for the Lakers, Miami, Washington, Indiana, and pretty much uh, finished up in 2006. And then he played overseas all the way through 2011, won a championship with the Los Angeles Lakers back in 2002. Um, it's funny, you just never really remember that name too much. But it looks like, you know, a very successful career. Next one, um, another guy who's had a very successful career in the NBA, Eric Dampier. Uh, not for what you think, you know, he played very, you know, for a very long time in this league, not played for the, up until 2012 with the Atlanta Hawks drafted in 1996. What are your memories of, of Eric Dampier? Well, I got to know Damp quite well because he was obviously in Dallas for a while um, and they were very good. <laughs> he was on a team that had a lot of shooters and a lot of scorers. He was very much like Marcus Camby. He, you weren't going to, run the ball through him very often, not on purpose, but he would, no matter what, no matter how many touches he had, he was a tough rebounder. He was a tough defender and a man of few words, <laughs> but uh, he certainly understood uh, what it took to win. And Indiana was quite good with him and Dallas, very good with him. And again, in those situations like the modern NBA, where it's not about the center, you're not going to run your offense through Eric Dampier. But while you're running your offense through Dirk or Steve Nash or Reggie Miller or, you know, he will be a presence in the center, in the middle, and that's really all you're asking of the center at this era of the NBA. The next pick for the draft was Todd Fuller. Selected by the Golden State Warriors. And what was your favorite Todd Fuller moment in the NBA? <laughs> Um, that's a guy where I recognize the name, but I don't, if I ever met him, I don't remember. <laughs> like, it might be the 3.7 <laughs> points per game for his career. Um, and I, I don't want to make light. Hey, you had a, you had an NBA career, played five years, made some good money, but I don't, that's not a player that I personally remember meeting or, or having a conversation with, which is not to say I didn't, I just don't remember. The next pick in the draft, uh, selected by the Cleveland Cavaliers with the 12th pick, was Vitaly Potapenko. Again, I'll ask the same question. Your favorite Vitaly Potapenko moment in the NBA? Well, I do remember Vitaly, and I did have some conversations with him. Um, that was, you know, the international element of the NBA was not uh, taken for granted as m nearly as much as it is now. And I remember we did a feature on, on that that very thing, the international element, uh, and Vitaly was one of the guys we talked to about, you know, growing up elsewhere and landing here. You know, did you ever imagine that you would actually be able to make it into the NBA? Uh, along with, by the way, the 14th pick was Peja Storakovic, um, who I did know quite well. But, uh, you know, this is a guy that had a productive career. He And, uh, you know, Cleveland was very much like Dampier, very much like Camby. You didn't run plays for him, but he was a presence, and you did have to guard him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he did what was asked of him on, on, uh, when he was in the game. The next pick in the draft was Kobe Bryant. We're going to be, we're going to be doing a Kobe Bryant show in the next few weeks. Um, there's so much we can say about it. But the fact that Charlotte picked them and then moved them says a lot about pretty much the story history of the Charlotte Hornets, doesn't it? 
It, it absolutely is. It's a microcosm. That, that in a nutshell. If you want to know the number one thing you need to know about the Charlotte Hornets is they traded Kobe Bryant for Vladi Divac, uh and have ne- and really have not been good since. Uh, they were decent for a short period of time with Gerald Wallace uh, as the centerpiece and Stephen Jackson and Raymond Felton. But overall, uh, Kobe Bryant, of course, one of the all-time transcendent players uh, in the league, and Charlotte was like, nah, we don't have minutes for you. Uh, yeah, that's rough, man. Uh, that I don't think there's another. If you want to talk about the most underrated player on draft day, there's no question. Kobe Bryant is number one. And we're going to end up doing our whole show on Kobe coming up at uh, some point. The next pick is a very underrated pick, and uh, I know we're over an hour already. We'll do this in another couple of minutes, and we'll end up doing a part two of the show. Um, Pedro Stoyakovic. You want to talk about? I think, you know, you and I joke about the whole Drazen-Petrovic thing on how I'm a very big Drazen advocate and what he meant to the game. I remember sitting down with Peja. Uh, he was playing for the Hornets at that point in time, and he was hurt. But he and I sat and we discussed being an international player in the NBA, and we pointed up to Drazen's jersey up at the Meadowlands, and he said, yeah, because that's one of the reasons why I'm here. Peja really – I think he really came – to his own during that Sacramento team with Bibby and Weber and that, yeah, that, that team. Cause when Jason Williams was the point guard of that Sacramento team, they were not half as good as they were when Bibby got there. And that's where I felt where page, it was pages coming out party. Doug Christie was on that team too. Doug Christie was on that team. Jimmy Jackson was on that team. It was, it, was, it was a very, very good Sacramento team. They were, and Rick Adelman was their coach, and I got to know Rick quite well uh, when he was with Houston, and I, I knew him passingly, but I got to know him really well in Houston. I grew up watching him coach the Blazers, um, but Peja was a transcendent player, not to the extent of Kobe, but he rose to the occasion. One of the great all-time international players. Obviously, Dirk is number one. But Peja's up there. Uh, and the funny thing is he's Serbian, and one of the guys I worked with very consistently in Dallas, he did our international column for uh, Hoops World, and Nikola Olic, he's also Serbian. And there's this thing when a Serbian meets a Serbian in some other city, some other country besides Serbia, you must have dinner and drinks, and it's a lot of drinks. <laughs> and so I got to know Peja really, really well, uh, especially when he was in Dallas, which, of course, that was the end of his prime, very, very end of his prime. And I heard a lot of stories, crazy stories. Um, and then when he got to New Orleans, even more crazy stories. But Peja um, was money from three. That Sacramento team, like we talked about earlier, there are a few teams that were so incredibly good and just never got a championship. And that Sacramento team is one of them. But I'll also say this about Peja. His time in Dallas was not great. But in the second round, the year the, the year they won the championship, in the second round, they faced the Lakers. And they do not beat the Lakers without Peja. Peja was absolutely incredible in that series. He almost single-handedly beat the Lakers in that series. Wasn't Dirk. Wasn't Jason Terry. It, I mean, Peja was amazing. And that's the thing that I most remember. As much as I remember, he was great in Sacramento. They were phenomenal. But even later in his career, 
It's like he actually got healthy for a few minutes, and it came in a stretch of games against the Lakers, and he's the reason. Anytime a team wins a championship, there are multiple heroes besides the marquee player. Uh, obviously, Dirk and Jason Kidd were the big names for the Mavericks, but you, it takes a lot of heroes to get you through series. And Peja was absolutely that for the Mavericks when they needed him most against the Lakers. And then he disappeared the rest, but, hey, the rest of the guys stepped up. But uh, to his credit, he was ready when, the, when it came his time. He was ready, even late in his career. What we'll do is we'll do the next pick, and then we'll do some highlights for the rest of the, uh, for the draft. So, therefore, we can wrap this up and put a bow on it. The next pick, again, another star-studded player. And the guy, another guy we could probably much do our, our own show on is Steve Nash. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Steve Nash drafted 15th by the Phoenix Suns, uh, senior out of Santa Clara. Look, Nash's career, absolutely brilliant. I, I felt that you got to start seeing his genius. Yeah, he, he, was, he was a genius in Dallas after, that, you know, after he got traded from Phoenix initially. But when he went back to Phoenix, that became his team. And watching Amari and Sean Marion and Quentin Richardson yeah. and Joe Johnson, those types of teams that – and then even after all those guys departed – Nash still had those guys competitive in, in games and fighting for playoff spots. So, look, Nash is a Hall of Famer. I, I, I felt he deserved a better ending than he did in Los Angeles. Uh, your take <laughs> yeah. and your perception of seeing Steve Nash as much as you did. I did get to see him, and I got to know him quite well. Um, it was great. And I'll tell you this, and I've had this conversation with both Steve and Dirk, because they were best friends when they were playing together in Dallas. They were best friends. They were, they partied a lot outside of, uh, outside of uh, the arena, and, and maybe hurt each other's careers early on because of that. They were so busy partying, they weren't as focused on being the best athletes they could be. The best thing that happened to both of them was him moving to Phoenix because it forced him to become the star of the team, and it forced Dirk to become the star of the team. And I think if you don't, if that doesn't happen, if he, if they both wind up together in Dallas for over the long haul, neither of them become the players that they became when you separated them. They both stopped partying. They both started the time they were spending partying. They spent working, especially Dirk. Oh my God, Dirk, <laughs> that guy, workaholic. Uh, and they both became great spokesmen for the league. Uh, in both places. And I think that watching Steve Nash mature that way, seeing, I remember the night I was in the Mavericks locker room when we found out that Nash wasn't, they, he wasn't coming back. He sort of had told Mark Cuban that he was coming back, even though Phoenix offered more money, but Dallas was home, blah, blah, blah. He's going to stay in Dallas. And then he didn't. And it was, uh, it, it was one of those surreal, like the vacuum, the, all the air left the locker room, and we were all standing there like, wow, Steve left. Like, he's gone. But it was incredible for both of those players. Because neither Dirk nor Steve, they, they both wanted to defer to each other. They're buddies, best friends, great friends. They want to share the ball. But when that happened, they both became the go-to guy for, for those two teams, for Phoenix and Dallas. It doesn't happen if he doesn't leave. So I think in, in the long run, and, and yeah, Steve didn't get a championship, but wow, he was, <laughs> he, 
the MV3, as Sasha Baron Conan said on those crazy commercials he did. Uh, Steve was was absolutely phenomenal, and Dirk, of course, the number six scorer in all time history, greatest international player to ever play. They're about to rename a street, Olive Street in Dallas, that runs by American Airlines Center, is about to be renamed Novitski Way. Uh, as as fun as it was watching them play together, watching them play apart was defined an era of excellence in the NBA. If you look at the rest of this draft, obviously Jermaine O'Neal, we can talk about. He picked, he was picked 17th. Tony Delk right after Nash. Tony Delk had a solid NBA career. Um, obviously Jermaine O'Neal. I, I, when it comes to Jermaine O'Neal, I try to think about what his legacy was. He was a great player of Indiana. Um, he was not not solid in Portland. He bounced around the league to a, a multiple different teams. Um, I always think when I think of Jermaine O'Neal. I always felt that he was one of those guys. He was never, you know, he wasn't the lead singer of the band, but he was, he was one of the, he was the drummer or the bass player, you know, a very big contributor, but he wasn't the guy. Yeah. And I did, I got to know Jermaine quite well, quite well. Uh, one of the guys I, I would go to a game specifically to talk to him, even if it wasn't an interview, just because he was in town or he was in San Antonio, I'd make the trip. I'd drive down to San Antonio just to see Jermaine and just catch up and just talk. Um, had a really interesting perspective on the league. It was very level-headed. Um, you know, like you said, never the star player, but I think he was someone that the younger players on the team benefited from being around him. But he also was a guy who would, hey, he would deliver. Uh, you didn't. He wasn't oh, he, number he one. Deliver. Yeah, he delivered. But he just, like I said, he when Indiana tried to build that team around him, that the team, this team, yeah. uh, you know, crumbled. You know, right. and, that and didn't it's a work. shame. Yeah, and then you look at it, like obviously some more notable names. Walter McCarty had a stellar career in the NBA for a little while. Obviously, Zodrunas Ilgowskis uh, was, was yeah. mainstay in Cleveland for all those Big years. Lee. Derek Derek Fisher, you know, you, you, you can't say enough good things about him. Um, One of the all-time steals at 24 for the Lakers, Derek Fisher. What a career! Uh, and now, of course, working with the NBA. Uh, Jerome Williams, uh, junkyard dog, had a stellar yeah. career in the NBA as well. <laughs> you know, he he was towards the end of the first round. Um, look at the second round: Osella Harrington, Muchi Norris, Jeff McInnes. Well, guys, like, this was a pretty deep draft. You know, we I think Randy Livingston, I think we did this. Malik Rose, yeah, <laughs> Malik Rose, San Antonio. Oh my God, he, how long did how long was he in the league for? Yeah, Malik was thirteen you years. Know? Yeah, like great you look, contributor. You look at it, uh, Ben Davis. How about at, Ben Davis, the forty-third pick in the draft, Big Ben? How important was he to the it, Detroit Pistons? Granted, the Magic never at, found a use for him. <laughs> you you look at this draft. Like if I had to ask you to rank this draft, you know where do you where do you put this? Do you look at this as a top five all-time draft from top to bottom? Yeah, maybe top three because the the uh, Olajuwon draft, the Jordan draft, but this might be the number three in you, my you book. Do you put the LeBron uh, draft in there? I mean, you you get LeBron, but who else was in that draft class? Yeah, Dwayne Let's Wade. You have Chris Bosh. 
you have Carmelo Anthony. Uh, T.J. Ford, I loved him. Not that he was an all-time great player, but I really liked T.J. a lot. Uh, Nick Collison played forever. David West. Hey, David West was was very good for Indiana in his prime. Pavlovich played a long time. There's a lot of good utility players. Kendrick Perkins was at the bottom of that draft. Luke Walton was second round. <laughs> but no, after after Luke. LeBron, remember Darko Milicic, remember the expectations around him? Like he was supposed to be the next big thing. The NBA was going to look at the center position again. He was going to be dominant. He was. So no, I would, I would definitely put, and Kirk Heinrich, of course, around forever. I would put this draft definitely below 96. <laughs> Okay, no, that's that's a fair that's a fair uh, assessment. But let's tell everybody where they can find us. They can listen to all of our shows at backsportspage.com, Spotify, Apple Music, uh, iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcast. That's where you can find us. Uh, we we take great pride in delivering a new show every single week. You can follow Bill on Twitter at the Rocket Guy. You can follow me at Twitter at Randy BSB and Instagram at Randy BSB, uh, as well as backsportspage.com for all the writing. Bill, what, what else do you want to add to that before we uh, disappear for a week? I'll just say that our team is rolling out. We have rolled out most of them already, the NBA, the 2019-20 NBA team previews. Uh, so make sure you're checking Backsports page every day. If you're following me on Twitter, you'll see them all because I make sure I tweet those out. But we're really focused on the NBA right now as, the, as training camps prepare to, to get underway. And we're getting ready to also have some exclusive content from many of the camps. Uh, we'll have stuff from Chicago, Boston, Los Angeles. Uh, man, Tracy, Tracy from Back Sports Page is going to be everywhere. Uh, I think yeah. he's going to be. <laughs> I think he's going to be in Memphis, Atlanta, Charlotte. Where else is he going to go? Oh man, anywhere he he's just crazy. He wants to he wants to see everybody everywhere. New Orleans. He's going to New Orleans to catch up with our our good friend David Griffin. So. Yeah, he's, Tracy well, Graven is the – he's our utility guy right there. <laughs> he's, he's our junkyard dog. He's our utility guy. <laughs> well, you know, let's, and let's do this. Um, if I – let's do the way too early predictions of this, obviously, the 1920 uh, season. Assuming everybody stays healthy, if I had to say to you, give me three teams to watch, to keep an eye on, who would you give me? Milwaukee Bucks, number one. They were the best team in the league last season. They lost Brogdon, but I don't think they're going to miss him as much as I think some people believe they will. Obviously, the Clippers, they're on paper the best team in the league. Doesn't always work out that way, but maybe. Uh, And then I'm going to say the Houston Rockets. And, yes, there's some homerism there. But I am really, really interested to see if Russell Westbrook and James Harden, who have been – consistently MVP candidates for the last number of years. Can they coexist? Because if they can, the Rockets might win the championship. If they can't, things are going to get really ugly in Houston. My three teams I want to keep an eye on, um, and this is to show you how I'm sort of like, I like the underneath teams. I want to keep an eye on the Portland Trailblazers. Hassan Whiteside playing with Lillard and McCullough should be very interesting to see that they finally got a guy who can bang bodies and 
give him some scoring on the inside. It just matters how they use him. Um, I, I really want to keep an eye like on the Los Angeles Clippers, like you just said before, how Kawhi and Paul George play together. And also, and this is the part that a lot of people are really not bringing up, but Kawhi is going to miss games this year. He's, he's, Kawhi's not going to play in a full 82-game season. No. So that's the part That's the part to me that's going to be very, very, very interesting. And then the third team is, because it's local to me over here, is I'm going to keep an eye on the Brooklyn Nets, uh, how Kyrie plays and see how that whole thing comes together with him t- basically playing in a, a role that D'Angelo Russell thrived in last season. I'm very intrigued to see how that plays itself out. Uh, I didn't like the face. move for no, Kyrie. Yes. Yeah, well, the thing is, I didn't really like the move for Kyrie because, I, and, I, and don't get me wrong, I get it. You have to make the move to get Kyrie if you're going to get Kevin Durant. You're not getting one without yeah. the other. But nope. Kyrie, D'Angelo Russell built a rapport with his guys because they're all young guys together. I'm not sure you're going to get that with Kyrie. I don't know if Kyrie can relate to some of the young kids that were on this Nets team. He sure had trouble with that in Boston. Yeah, that's the thing. Right? Those guys are overjoyed to have Kimba Walker in camp because he's just it was enough to just not be Kyrie. Well, the thing is Glenn Stevens is a was a college coach. And the kids that he had in Boston, you know, when Jason Tatum came to the league and Jalen Brown, and you had a good pro in Al Horford. You, can, you find me another pro like Alan Horford, or Al Horford, yeah. who's going to be able to, <laughs> to really be able to get the coach's message across. Al Horford was an excellent pro. And you take that, so, and so you have that, you have young kids with a college coach because they technically should have been in college anyway. So with that being said, that team, when Kyrie came back, was not the same team that made it to the Eastern Conference Finals because it stumped the growth of guys like uh, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and, you know, uh, Rozier. All those guys went through wars in the playoffs against Milwaukee and and Cleveland. And they didn't get to have those wars because Kyrie was doing his thing when he came back. And it just right. didn't work. I'm trying to figure out if it's also more Kyrie or is it also Hayward as well? Because Well, we're going to find out because Hayward was a big disappointment. Of course, he got hurt right away the first year in Boston, which some would say was uh, karma. But... <laughs> But, you know, is he going to be a star player? There's Gordon Hayward needs to have a big year this year because now you've got Kimball Walker, who is a very willing passer and will create offense for you. And he's got to prove to me, he, I mean, he's got to prove to the Celtics, but from my opinion, he's got to prove that he was worth what they paid to get him uh, because the Jazz basically felt like, well, we like you, kid, but okay, <laughs> you know, go go ahead. So we're going to have to see Gordon Hayward as one of the players to watch, I think, this year for sure. I know we just went a little longer and started doing uh, an NBA preview of our own. 
Uh, we usually don't talk about the everyday stuff, but I, I think it's I think it's good that we did. I think it's going to be a very interesting season this year. Um, I guess last question I have for you, Bill, is you want to let everybody know where they can find you on social media. Yeah, absolutely. At the Rocket Guy is my Twitter handle, and anything that we're pumping out uh, as far as writing or podcasts, or we're going to be starting our YouTube series, The Hardwood Huddle, here before too long. Uh, that's all going to get pumped out on Twitter. So follow me at the Rocket Guy, and you'll be able to keep up with all of the back sports page NBA stuff that's going on because I'll make sure it's uh, pumped out and y'all are informed. Excellent. Well, Bill, we'll do this again in uh, seven days. Sounds good. Always a pleasure, my friend. All right, you too, my friend.
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. 